Well, praise the Lord. I, uh, I'm, I'm so grateful for, uh, for the Lord's goodness to us this, this morning. And uh, let, me, let me just now, uh, before I forget it, uh, thank you as a congregation for uh, your, your receptivity of Ben and I here in your midst. Uh, we uh, have so thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you a little better. We feel like we've acquired uh, uh, brothers and sisters here in Christ. Uh, we've been here all the time, but uh, it's just been refreshing to be in and out of your homes and the good food you've offered to us and also your words of encouragement. That has meant a lot to me, and uh, it sort of has kept me going in, the, in this week. Um, and, and so I, uh, I just again recognize that uh, I have not fully expounded the, the enormity of the doctrine of salvation, and I don't believe any man can fully expound it. Uh, but I believe that we will be exploring the reality of that in the ongoing ages of eternity once we get over there in, in, in glory. Um, it says something about that, something to the nature of that in Ephesians chapter 2. I forget where it is, about verse 7, 8, or 8, or somewhere in there, uh, uh, 6, 7, or 8. But look at it. It says that uh, we will be, uh, I believe we will be uh, exploring and uh, opening the package and just seeing, being able to see uh, the richness of it throughout the endless ages of eternity. And so, uh, so I, I recognize that that's really not possible for us fully here, but we can uh, lay hold of it in a way that will, will bless our lives. And I just read a little quote that John Wesley said, gave uh, sometime. He talked about the, the Christian life as being on the level of a miracle. And it's really that way, isn't it? The, the Christian life is not living life in our own strength, but it's living life on the level of a miracle. That's why he calls it more than conquerors for him that loved us. It's not that we become so strong that we conquer in our own strength, but, but we, we, we enter in upon the conquest of Christ. And that to me is, is, is a good explanation of the victorious Christian life. Um, so, keep exploring the reality of this. Uh, you know, it does something for you. It revives you. It, it energizes you. It does me. Uh, and, and so, keep exploring the reality of this. I, you know, if, if, I have, if all I've done this week is stimulate you to, to, to scratch below the surface in these passages, then I'm satisfied. <laughs> okay? I'll go home this afternoon feeling satisfied if I have just stimulated you to want to dig for the gold that is below the surface in these passages in Romans chapter 1 through 8. Well, uh, this, uh, in this last session, we're going to be looking at the, the victorious Christian life, and I entitled this, this message, The Law of Life in Christ Jesus. It's taken from verse 2 in Romans chapter, uh, chapter 8. Uh, specifically, and that's really the phrase I, I'm going to I'm going to work my way up to it. But it's really the phrase that I'm focusing on. Uh, I want you to know right from the get-go. It is verse two in Romans chapter eight, where where Paul says, "For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free 
from the law of sin and death. And that, in, 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 a, in, a, in a short way, captures the concept of victorious Christian living. And I, it's that really what I wanna, that's really what I want to focus on and dwell on in, in this, this section. But it's going to take me a while to get there, and you know that, right? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, getting Romans 8 into perspective. <laughs> um, you know, in a, in a very real way, Romans 8 brings the doctrine of salvation as given in the book of Romans to a conclusion. Uh, it brings, uh, begins by starting off by saying there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus and ends with that triumphant cry, we're more than conquerors to him that loved us. This certainly reminds us of the fact that the doctrine of salvation is meant to bring us to a place for the, where we're able to live victori- victoriously over, uh, over uh, sin in our personal lives. I'd like to refer to Romans 8 as our modus operandi, which is the Latin term meaning the mode of operation or the way something works. Do you like to explore the way something works? Well, in Romans 8, it tells us how, in a, I believe, in, in especially in the first 13 verses, and that's, that's as far as I'm going to uh, get here in Romans chapter 8. Uh, but in Romans chapter 8, uh, we're told how the Christian life victorious Christian life is meant to work. There are two things important in, in getting Romans 8 into perspective. And the first one is a good understanding of Romans chapter 6. And we've just explored some of that, and so I'm not going to go back into that uh, again uh, to, because, uh, and, you know, we, we could do a review, but that's unnecessary. You, you do have a grasp of it, and something of a grasp of it, an understanding of it, I, 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 I hope. Uh, as we work our way through the, the first uh, 11 verses there. And so, but a good understanding of Romans 6 is especially important to, uh, to uh, getting a proper perspective in Romans 6. The other thing that, is, that we need, uh, is needful, is to have, to have a proper understanding of Romans 8, is we need to have a, a good understanding of Romans chapter 7 in, in order to fully appreciate Romans chapter 8. In fact, in order to properly understand Romans 8, I believe it's imperative that we, we dig around Romans chapter 7 and get it into, at least into proper perspective. Again, it's one of those passages that I'm not going to be able to be totally definitive about. Uh, I'm, I'm still learning uh, the, what, what Romans chapter 8 is, is uh, telling us, but I feel like I have at least a, a bit of a grasp on, on what, uh, what, what Romans 7 uh, it's attempting to uh, how it introduces us to Romans chapter eight, but the Ro- Romans chapter seven, and I hope you've read it. I encourage you to read it last night. I hope you've read Romans chapter seven. Uh, but the content of, of Romans chapter seven, I hope you notice, is really developed about around three rhetorical questions. Have you noticed now? Have, have you gotten to, to understand that a lot of Paul's passages the uh, he uh, opens up with a rhetorical question. Um, and that's true here. There are three rhetorical questions in Romans chapter 7. And so the, the, Romans, the content of Romans 7 is developed around those three rhetorical questions. The first one is, Know ye not that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives? That's verse 1. This is discussed and answered in, in verses 1 through 6. 
And then the second rhetorical question is in verse 7, where it says, Is the law sin? Now, it's an interesting question. Uh, it's a profound question. But this is discussed and answered in Romans 7, uh, uh, Romans 7 verses 7 through 12. And then the, the, the last rhetorical question you have in Romans chapter 7 uh, that is, uh, What that which is good made death unto me, uh, in other words, is the law, if I could interpret that to say, is the law the cause of our spiritual death, or is the law the cause of our spiritual disease? Is it? Well, think about that. This is, I believe, extensively answered in verses 13 to 25, that long, complex uh, section where it says, I, when I want to do right, I, I can't do it, and when I... Uh, and when I don't want to do what is, what is right, I, I find myself doing it. And have you ever been there? <laughs> yeah, I know now. <laughs> well, so Paul uh, uh, discusses that in, in, in verses, um, uh, yeah, in, in these next, that, that next section, verse. Uh, that extensive section in Romans 7 that we struggle with so often. But um, uh, now, um, so using this framework of Romans chapter 7, allow me to give just a brief overview of Romans 7. You see, Romans 7, 1 through 6, perhaps uh, Paul is here explaining his statement in Romans 6, 14, where he declares that sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under law. Did that surprise you when he says when he says that? Because you're not under law but under sin. How many of you think that being under law solves the problem of sin? Well, and so and so I, I believe this is Romans seven one to six it helps us uh, see to see that. The, the answer to our struggle with sin is not to be under law, but be under the power of grace. See, grace has two meanings. It talks about the benevolence of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, but, but also grace as it's used here in Romans 6.14 is not so much talking about the benevolence of God, but it's talking about the power of God. Grace, grace here means His enabling power. So, we... We are, we're free from the dominion of sin by, by, by God's divine enabling power. And so by the use of the analogy of marriage, Paul shows us how through the death of Christ we are freed from the dominion of sin and therefore also freed from the law without rebelling against it. Okay? Then you have this section in, in uh, Romans 7, 1 to 13. I wasn't going to read any of these sections because I, I, because I was assuming that you have read them, but, but let me just read this section, verses 7 to 13, and refresh ourselves in it. It says, uh, Because the carnal man, no, I'm sorry, that's Romans 8, um, chapter 7, um, verse, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid, nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet, uh, but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me. Now listen to this one. Sin by the occasion of the commandment 
wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Concupiscence means evil desire. It wrought in me, stimulated all manner of evil desires in me. That's probably why it says it's a law of sin. Um, for without the law, sin is death. Well, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin is taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. And, and so here Paul is exploring, uh, giving us further, as I indicated last night, uh, Paul is further defining the purpose of the law. But let me just hone in on one, one aspect of this here. Uh, there, there are at least three or four aspects uh, where he explains the purpose of sin in, in our lives. But I, I just want to hone in and I want to illustrate uh, something of what, what Paul is, is, might be saying here. In, in this in this passage, because uh, uh, he, he he talks about how that uh, how that how that the, the law uh, uh, stimulates in me all manner of stupidity, um, and uh, it's, it's that which I want to uh, just uh, show you how I what I think Paul is attempting to say here, uh, and so. Uh, Yes, let, let me catch up with myself on, on my notes here. Um, so, the, the, what Paul is saying here in verse 8 and 9 is that the law arouses sin, stirs up sinful desires in sinful human nature. And the problem is not with the law, but the problem is with sinful human nature. You need, need to keep remembering that. Uh, and Leon Morris makes this insightful observation in relation to this. He says, it is, distress, it is a distressing fact of human nature that any pro, pro, uh, pro, prohibition tends to awaken in us a desire to transgress that prohibition. Does, does that ring a bell with you? Uh, I have three bags here. You can try this with your children, but I'm going to try it on you as an adult. Uh, if, if, if I say to you, you can look into this bag, and then you can look into this bag, but don't you dare look into this bag. Which bag do you want to look into? Real quick. This one, this one, or this one? Okay. I'm filling up your curiosity by commandment. It's not that the commandment is wrong, but there's something wrong in here that causes that to happen. Yeah. You see that? And that's what Paul is saying. It, it stirs up. It, it, you know, uh, the commandment tends to do that. And, and Paul, that's part of what Paul is saying here. And so, uh, yeah. Um, and so that, but the purpose of the law is really to to uh, reveal to us our sinfulness. And even, even this fact that it, 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 it stirs up, arouses sinful desires in me, uh, uh, also is still part of what, what the law does. It, it helps us to understand and see our own sinfulness. And, and that is reinforced again and again, not only here in Romans 7, but also, but it isn't reinforced here in Romans chapter 7. And that's important to understanding Romans chapter 7. Well, so, but then we come to this passage in uh, verses 13 to 25 in Romans 7, 
and uh, I, I really ought to uh, read that to refresh us in it, but you, you, you remember the, that, that extensive passage. When he talked about, when I wanted to do something, uh, it, I just, uh, I, I couldn't do it, and what I wanted to do, what I didn't want to do, I did, and I accepted it. Well, it seems to me that this portion of Romans 7 is exactly important in understanding Romans 8. Um, remember that the rhetorical question is, uh, is the law sin? Is the law the cause, what causes me to sin? Put it another way, uh, is the law the cause of my spiritual defeat? Could be another way of, of asking the question, but is the law sin? And, and uh, so in this section, it's describing a spiritual struggle of titanic proportions. You know, the question is, does this struggle belong here between Romans 6 and 8, or would it be better fit in the middle of Romans chapter 3? Is Paul describing the experience of someone before he was a believer, before he was justified, before he was baptized into Jesus Christ, or after? These are questions uh, you need to consider. But allow me to, uh, I'm not going to be very definitive in answering those questions. Uh, I, I want you to uh, work on those yourself. But allow me to bring some things into focus in relation to this passage. Um, and since, uh, several things you need to consider is that in this passage, Paul speaks only in the first person singular and in the present tense. Because Paul speaks here in the first person singular, he's speaking of his own personal experience. However, this doesn't mean that he isn't also speaking for each one of us or for, for those who thought that the law was the answer to their, 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 their personal sinfulness. Okay. Um, the use of the present tense, uh, according to the strict rules of grammar, means that Paul places the struggle in the present tense and not some distant past. But be that as it may, uh, there are three possible situations Paul is describing in this section. Uh, and let me give you those three real quickly and move on. Paul is describing how, as a Jew, he thought the law was not only the basis for his righteousness, also thought that the law was the answer to his struggle with sin. So in that sense, it, it really is Paul is saying what he experienced earlier uh, before Christ, to be when he thought the law was, uh, was the answer to his need. The use of the, the verbs in the present tense makes this somewhat problematic, but be that as it may, the, the second thing is here that he is describing a Jewish believer, perhaps, who has received the gospel and accepts the fact that he is saved by grace, but now thinks he's perfected by the law, as he talked about in Galatians, in the book of Galatians, thus he is mixing law and grace. That's another possibility here. Uh, one of the reasons this is very possible is because that in verse 1, Paul said, I'm speaking to them that know the law. He, he's speaking to those who have experienced the law in their lives. And, and so that he, he is speaking to, to those that, to, to, I believe, to Jewish people here who, who know the law. And, uh, but if you are mixing law and grace, you will experience a struggle of titanic proportions, especially in attempting to be perfected by the law. Uh, and uh, you, you can see that that is uh, this struggle to describe that kind of thing. Uh, but the other possibility is, and, is that he is portraying 
a new believer who, after he saw he understood the truth of what it means to be baptized into Jesus Christ, uh, he thought that he was going to now live a, an unhindered and uncontested life of spiritual victory. Um, well, he certainly thought that if he was not dead and beaten to sin and the body of sin was not kaput or destroyed, he should have no more battle with sin that dwells within. If this isn't an interpretation of this passage, then it probably isn't. It at least is a good, what should I call it, application of it in, 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 in some of our experiences. Is there anyone here, and I'm asking a rhetorical question, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm trying to, to help you understand. Is there anyone here as a young Christian, or even as a mature Christian, who, who can identify somewhat, somewhere along the way with this struggle that, that, he, that he talked about? Um, well, you know, it's... Um, This struggle, in this application of it, um, this struggle in this passage teaches us that none of us can live the victorious Christian life in our own strength. Uh, and so, uh, uh, let me tell you about a young man a number, of, uh, a number of years ago who called me early one morning. Uh, this young man came to me uh, soon after he, he embraced Christ uh, as his sin sacrifice when he was about 15 years old, and then he was baptized. And, but soon after he, he was baptized, he came to me as a 16-year-old and said to this 70-some-year-old, asked me to mentor him uh, in his life. And that, that says something about the character of this young man. You know, when a when a 16 year old can come to a 70 some year old and say, "Would you would you walk alongside of me and mentor me?" And so I so we so I did, and and we would meet every once in a while and and talk about things and struggles that he was experiencing, etc. And 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 so, but this this one morning I got a call from this young man uh, early in the morning. He said, "Wayne," and I could tell the seriousness of his voice right away. I said, "Wayne, I've, I've got a I've got to talk to you." Could I come over right away? And I said, yes, I could come over. He came over and went into my study and he sat there. And, uh, and I said, so um, what, uh, what is happening? And, uh, and he said, well, Wayne, um, uh, I thought I was spiritually on top of things. Uh, and suddenly I, I did it. So he, he took off his glasses and the tears were rolling down over his eyes. And uh, as he said that, and, uh, and then he, he said this to me, he said, Wayne, he said, am I normal? Am I normal? What did he mean? I allowed the question to hang for some, a long minute. Am I normal? And then I, I turned to Romans chapter 7 and 8. 
to help you understand what might be happening in the church. Please. Let me ask you the question. Are you normal? What is normal? After all, is Romans chapter 7 normal? Is Romans chapter 7 the normal Christian life? And they all said, no. And that's right. But it doesn't mean that we don't experience Romans chapter 7. So how do you feel with it when you see it? You see, I believe Romans chapter 8 is the normal Christian life. I really believe that. There are some, there are some Christians that, you know, and I, I heard it in, in the years before I was 16 when I was still attending the Amish church that, you know, Romans chapter 7 is just the best we can do. So, so yes, um, this this is an important to understand. You know, uh, it is possible that some Christians live in Romans chapter seven all of their lives. I mean, that could be a tragedy, but that is a possibility. You know, maybe they're a little like a, a patient in a psychiatric hospital that I read about uh, many years ago when they had psychiatric hospitals, who, who was tested to see if he was healthy enough to be released in, uh, and to function in society. So they would take this uh, this young this this patient and they would put him into a room that uh, had several things in it. And the room had a uh, had a, a laboratory with a Water faucet running through it, and he had a and, and had a, a plug to plug the laboratory. He had a, a mop and a broom, a mop and a bucket. And so they put this young man into this room, and then they would open the spigot, plug the, the the hole in the sink, open the spigot, and let the water run. And they would leave the, the room, and they had a see-through uh, glass there in the door, and they could see that this young man was there. And if the young man, if if the man, this patient, if the man would, all he would do is take the mop in the bucket and keep mopping up the, the, the water off the floor and trying to get the water off the floor and put it into the bucket. If that is all he did and never turned off the speakers, he, he knew he wasn't ready to function normally in society. You know, there are Christians, sincere Christians, who don't know how to turn off the spigot. Romans chapter 8 wants to show us how to turn off the spigot. If all you're doing is, is mopping up the mess that you make of your life, that's not what they call your Christian life. God wants us to experience Romans chapter 8. Now, I'm going to read the first 13 verses of Romans chapter 8. Um, 
Have they handed out the uh, the last section yet? Uh, you, you have those? Uh, no, hand those out. Yes, please. Um, and I, I'm, I'm going to just focus on the first 13 verses here. Um, but uh, I, and, and ultimately, I'm focusing on verse 2. You understand that? So if we, if we don't get to all verse 13, if I get to verse 2, that's the important thing. So uh, keep that in mind. I, I'm, I'll try to keep my eye on the clock. Uh, but uh, the important thing is not time, but eternity here this morning. <laughs> so keep that in mind. Uh, if I go a few minutes over, I don't, I don't think the, the roast or whatever we have, uh, the cash will be served. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Okay. Let me go back. Did I miss that one? Verse 24. Oh yes. Okay. Uh, yes. That is that is an important that is an important uh, uh, ending in, in chapter seven. You know the uh, in essence, uh, Paul is saying in verse 24 and verse 25 especially that the the answer to this titanic struggle in Romans seven is Jesus Christ. That that's the the overall answer to this titanic struggle. And, and Paul comes to that at the end of Romans uh, chapter 7, verse 25a. Uh, and, and, and so sometimes we're puzzled at what, why, why Paul is, is, is saying, uh, well, he's saying, Oh, wretched man that I am, verse 20, 24, uh, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God for Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind... I myself serve the law of God, and with the flesh, the law of sin. And, and sometimes we're, we're disturbed by that final uh, 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 thing that Paul says here. So I'm going to, with my mind, serve the law of God, and with the flesh, the law of sin. Well, so it, it seems to me what Paul is saying here, and I want us to get that, is that what, one of the things that Romans 7 teaches us in, in a real way here is that there remain there remain two remaining there remain two tendencies two propensities in the life of a believer yes yes two inclinations two tendencies two propensities in the life of a justified yes even the life of one baptized into Jesus Christ and uh, and, and and that a life of victory over sin over one sinful propensity is not a walk in the park. But, but it is possible. Romans 8 is going to tell us that. But, but he, and again, he is reinforcing the fact that there is no annihilation of our sin tendency here, our sinful propensity. Uh, probably not the oldest person here, but I want to testify to you as a 79-year-old man that uh, I have not lost my sinful propensity. <laughs> I can still find myself being tempted. And that proves that I've not lost my sinful propensity. And I, and I sometimes struggle with, with that sinful propensity. you understand what I mean? That sinful tendency is there. It's not been alive and annihilated. It's not been put away. I, I, I can deal with it by, through Jesus Christ. And Romans 8 shows us how to deal with that. And especially verse 2. And that's why when I come to Romans chapter 8, verse there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be kindly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If you have been baptized into Jesus Christ, I could add, but he, he doesn't say that here, but, but, but it says, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, and, and if you've been baptized into Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God does dwell in you. That's a sudden fact. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, and so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is not of him. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if we live after the flesh, we shall die. But if we, through the Spirit, to mortify the deeds of the body, we shall live. Isn't that wonderful? You may be seated. As I indicated earlier, this section of Romans 8 helps us understand how the victorious Christian life works. God is fleshed out. In fact, it seems to me that verses 1 through 4 restate the truth of Romans 6 in a nutshell. Because it defines for us how we can live victoriously over our sinful propensities that would cause us to walk in the flesh. You know, such sinful propensities as giving vent to anger and bitterness, lustful and sinful desires, malice or feelings of ill will toward others, evil speaking, lying, etc. The propensity toward those kinds of things and, and, and many more things as it relates to one's sinful propensity. You know, it's important as we enter into and start, get started in Romans chapter 8 that we understand what Paul means by the flesh because he uses the term flesh uh, many times in, in these uh, 13 verses. Uh, but the flesh, first of all, just recognize that the flesh is an entity in us that stands in contrast to the Spirit in these 13 verses. Uh, but the flesh is not necessarily referring to the physical body. I, 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 we need to understand that. Although the physical body often is the vehicle through which the flesh expresses itself, the, the word flesh is, is, not, is not synonymous to physical body here. And, and that's important. And the way we know that is because for the word body, the word body in Greek is soma, and the word that Paul uses for flesh here is sex. It's not soma, but sex. 
The flesh is used in Romans 8, in my mind, has to do with what is called the body of sin, referred to in, in chapter 6, verse 6, and refers to that element of still, sin still residual in human nature. Someone has said that the saint is on the narrow road to heaven, but is still in calling distance to sin, and that through the flesh. So we understand flesh. Regardless how you define it, start. Uh, the flesh is that carnal element in human nature that opposes the new divine nature that was birthed in us when we were baptized into Jesus Christ. The new divine nature was birthed into it, in, in us when we were baptized into Jesus Christ. And if the flesh is yielded to it, it will leave us wallowing in spiritual defeat. But we don't have to respond to the flesh in a positive way. We can, through the spirit, mortify, put to death the deeds of the body. And, 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 and it's the deeds of the body that express the, the, the nature of, of the flesh in us. Uh, F.F. Bruce said that uh, our flesh is our, has to do with our sinful propensity for madness. Well, the main question uh, I want to address as we come to this chapter in Romans 8 what, what does the Christian life look like? And how is it defined? And how is it realized? That's really what I'm driving at. How is it realized? How do you, how do you, come, how do you experience it? How do you, how do you live it out? I, I would reiterate what I said in, when I was postulating on Romans chapter 6. Uh, when I said that the victorious Christian life is not an illusion, and I would just want to reinforce that here in relation to Romans chapter 8, it is possible in and through Jesus Christ. Because Romans 8 explains to us, and especially verse 2, how we can live a victorious Christian life, a life free from condemnation. I believe it, it defines and explains and expands on Romans chapter 7, verse 25. So, allow me to explore. I, I just want to hone in on verse 2. And, and I, I believe some of the other things here will sort of fall in place if, we, if, I, if I can hone in on verse 2 and help us uh, look uh, uh, deeply underneath the surface of, of uh, verse 2. So, the truth of verse 2, uh, which is the focus of, of uh, what I want to say, uh, I, I want us to get it. I don't want us to miss it here this morning. Uh, it's so important that we understand this inexorable truth. You know that in Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, he's actually, he's actually praying there. Now, he says, I, I just wish that your eyes could be opened up to the, listen to this, the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. The exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. It has to do with the resurrection power. He goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 1. Imagine, imagine yourself being able 
able to tap into this kind of spiritual dynamics, this kind of spiritual power. Let me ask you, what kind of life would you live if you could tap into that kind of spiritual energy when you are depressed or discouraged? Or when you are confronted with the sin that so easily tests you? what the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus does. Like he gives it in, in, in verse 2. It sets us free, he says, from the law of sin and death. Let me read it again. Verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Uh, let, me, let me pause here a little bit because our evangelical friends would say, once you have embraced Christ, there can be no more condemnation for the rest of your life. Because all of your sins have been taken care of, past, present, and future. So there can be no more condemnation. Is that what he's talking about here? No. I believe when he says there is no, therefore no condemnation, he's talking about the condemnation that comes as a result of living the Roman 7 kind of life. There is condemnation connected to that. Some people want to be free from condemnation without being free from that which causes condemnation. So Paul says, therefore, those who are in Christ Jesus, and, 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 uh, and he's going to be explaining how that, uh, further, uh, how that further is lived out in our lives and experienced in our lives, especially in verse 2, but there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Because, because, and here he says, for, meaning because, the, the, the verse 2, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. The victorious Christian life is lived, is realized by living by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets me free. It says it very succinctly here from the law of sin and death. Now, what, what, is, what is the implications of that? You see, uh, the law of life in Christ Jesus supersedes is greater than, and the reason it overcomes the law of sin and death is because the law of life in Christ Jesus, the Spirit of the life, let me get it right, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is greater than the law of sin and death. It supersedes it. Um, it, is, it overcomes the law. It's able to overcome the law of sin and death. It, it overcomes the law of sin by virtue of the fact that it is a higher law. Okay. You know, do we understand that resurrected life, spiritual, the spiritual principle of resurrected life that we can experience now always supersedes flesh life? Because it's a higher law. A higher law, of course. 
that's why in Romans 6 9, Paul says, Christ being raised from the dead dies no more. Death has no more dominion over you. Not under a higher law. And that's why Paul said in Romans 6 14, sin shall not have dominion over you because you are under grace. You are living by God's enabling power. You are, you're, you're living by a higher law now than the law of sin and death. Let me attempt to explain it in this way. That the law of life in Christ Jesus supersedes the law of sin and death the same way that the law of aerodynamics supersedes and overcomes the law of gravity. Now, you understand that an airplane is able to fly because it operates under a higher law than the law of gravity. You understand that? This, this higher law is called the, the law of aerodynamics, meaning that by virtue of an airplane's unique design and the powerful thrust of its engines, it's able to overcome the law of gravity and the pull of gravity because it is operating under a higher and more powerful law the law of aerodynamics. You know, I, I remember the first time I flew in a DC-10. You know, I, I know I'm quite ancient, uh, and you young men, you, you know, this, this is probably normal for you, but I remember the first time I flew in a DC-10, white-body DC-10. It was when my father died uh, back in February of 1976, and we were living in Sulacan, northwest of Ontario. And uh, the, the airlines in, 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 in Ontario and in, in Canada were on strike, and so I couldn't fly out of Canada. So a missionary friend of mine uh, was going down to the States in his, uh, in his Cessna 185, and so he offered me a ride from, from Silicon down to International Falls on, on a little Cessna 185. And you've, you've been in those. Have you ever been in one of those? You know, it's still bit like a kite. You know, but it, it does overcome the law of gravity, and I'm grateful for that. But, but uh, uh, now I've, I've ridden on a smaller plane before that that was more like a kite, yes. It was just a two-place plane. It really was like a flight. And you know that you just went constantly were going like this. But, but when I got to the National Falls, I got on a, a jet prop, that took me from Minneapolis Falls to Minneapolis, Minnesota. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, I had, there was this huge DC-10, and I was getting a ride from Minneapolis, Minnesota, down to Columbia, South Carolina, because my father was living and had died in Blackville, South Carolina. So I was going to get this ride nonstop from, in, from Minneapolis to Columbia, South Carolina. And I got in on this uh, white-body jet, and I don't know how many, there were two aisles and maybe five seats in between the two aisles or two two or three feet from each end, you know. And I sat down in the seat, and, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, I wondered, how, how is this going to be? You know, I, I, it was the first. And uh, finally, everybody was in, and they closed the doors, and we rumbled out to the end of the, the runway, and suddenly the, the pilot, you know, he, he, he put the, 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 uh, the power on, and and the motor started whining and slowly began to move and faster and faster and finally we just sort of took off like this. And you put a set of glass with water on there, it would have never spilled on the And I said, wow. And then I said it backwards. Wow. You know what happened? 
interest, thousands of pounds. This is that thing. And it just, like that. Now, the law of aerodynamics doesn't cancel out the, 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 or destroy the law of gravity. It's still there. But by nature of, of it being a higher law, it simply supersedes it and overcomes it. We're more than comforts. <laughs> Why? You see, in the same way, the law of the, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets me free from the law of sin and death. The law of life in Christ Jesus doesn't cancel out the law of sin. It doesn't annihilate it. That is still operative in my flesh, but it does enable me to live above it and overcome it. And so the law of life in Christ Jesus doesn't cancel out the law of sin and death, but it renders it, as, as, it, as we were told in Romans chapter 6, it renders it inoperable, ineffective. As long as you walk in the Spirit and live by the Spirit of the law of life and culture. So what happens when you stop walking in the Spirit? When you stop minding the Spirit, that's what talks about this. Or when you stop mortifying the flesh through the, through the power of the Spirit, verse 15. What happens then? Let me, let me tell you that one day I had a call from the uh, from the funeral director um, in Chilogaz. We, you know, in, in the years we were in Northern Ontario, we, we did hundreds of funerals. You know, uh, the Indian people knew we were there for them, even though they didn't attend our church. They, when it came to funerals, they, they often called us, and so the funeral director called me. One, one morning he said, look, there's a man died on the Lackville Indian Reserve 35 miles north of Schoolhouse. He wasn't found for a couple of days. We're simply going to do go up and body bag and, and we're going to have a burial and would I come along and do a great fat service? And I said, I'd be glad to do so. And so about noon, uh, he arranged the uh, uh, Section 185 place plane for us to take us to, to the uh, White Bay Bay uh, Indian Village in, on the Lackville Indian Reserve and so we went there, and we did what we did our thing, and, and uh, had a real great set service. And, and then, so we got back in our plane, and, and we're going back to Sulagout. And we're about, we're about 10 or 12 mile, miles out of Sulagout, and we had just crossed this narrow strip of water, and, and we were flying a pontoon plane. You have to land on water. And we were flying this pontoon plane, and, uh, and, and uh, we just crossed this narrow strip of water, and we're flying over a big section of, of woods, uh, Canadian bushland, and when all at once the, the motor quit, and, and that prop just took straight up and down in front of us. Everything was absolutely silent, except for the funeral director helper who said, because he was watching the gas station, he said, you run out of gas, you run out of gas, you run out of gas. First thing, we're only several thousand feet up above the ground, and so the first thing I did, as you know, I was sitting back in the, uh, with the, uh, in the back seat with the funeral director, so I leaned over and looked to see how far down it was. <laughs> the, the pilot didn't say a word. But you know what happened? The, the moment that, that, that the, the power stopped, it began going like this. Yeah. Sinking. 
But, but the, the pilot did an excellent job. He knew exactly what to do. He wanted to get back to the, to the water. So he, he, he really made a, a, a turn. And as he was turning, he kept allowing uh, drops in, in uh, altitude so that he could keep up air speed so he wouldn't bottom out and just drop down on, into the bushland. So he, he kept he, he came back and, 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 and sure enough, and it's obvious because I'm here to tell the story, that, that we came to the body of water, but we didn't have a lot of space left. Uh, and and uh, it wasn't very wide. And, and the interesting thing, there was a, a fisherman out there in that body of water in, in a boat, and, and he was looking the other way, and he was fishing. And we were, we were deadly silent. We had no noise. We were like a big bird that was coming down. And we come busting down just about 10 feet from his boat. We couldn't maneuver too much. We didn't have, you know, and, and so we come and almost scared me there. You know, <laughs> to wonder he didn't jump out of the boat. Uh, because the, the water splashed, and I'm sure he got wet, and, and, and but we landed safely. But the point of the fact is that the moment we, the motor stopped, we went down. The moment that we stopped walking in spirit, minding in spirit, modifying Jesus Christ to his power and spirit, we will begin to go What more can I say? Uh, I think that's all. God bless you as you consider the, the, the wonderful plan of salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. And, and don't forget to, if I could just say it this way, plug into the power, the law, spirit of life, in Christ Jesus. God bless you. Thank you for being a good congregation. Preachers, um, and uh, may the Lord direct your life as we go from here. You know, uh, throughout this week, I, I really haven't given you opportunity to respond to any need that you might feel in sense in your life. And I know it's a little bit unusual for on a Sunday morning to to. Uh, to see if anyone would like to respond to any particular need they might have in their life. But I'm going to do so this morning. And I'm going to ask that we would just read two verses of invitation. Uh, it could be by memory, like I said, Diane, whatever you want to read, two verses of invitation. And uh, we're just going to pause here for a few moments. And uh, if there's anyone that you, you're grappling with a spiritual need, you're, you're, maybe, maybe it's even such a thing as you have... Uh, the Lord has showed you some spiritual truth and reality that, that, hasn't, that, that hasn't been real in your life before, and you just want to nail that down. Whatever it is, I, I'm, I'm just giving the opportunity to, to respond to that. And I think what we'll do is I'm just going to ask you to, if, you, if there is a, someone that has someone, you'd like to have someone pray with you and, and, and someone to share with and just 
you know, bless you in, in your struggle or in your, in, in your, your need and your desire for spiritual reality and spiritual truth. Uh, I'm just going to ask you to, to go up to the upstairs and uh, someone will be up there to, to pray with you. So, could we stand as we sing the verses and uh, let's pray first. Lord, I pray that you will give us open hearts and help us to be honest and free to, uh, to respond to something that is talked to us about in this past week. And so, will you uh, direct us in this moment and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, yes, just two verses. If you want to respond, just go up to the upstairs and someone will follow you.